are recording, and you can go ahead and uh, you have to press play whenever you're ready. Well, we have to go back to the beginning. It is. I, it is. I moved it back. Yeah, all you have to do okay. is hit the button on the bottom, the space bar. Okay, so... Just hit the space bar, the button on the bottom. Space bar. Space bar. Space bar, right, right here. That's the space bar. Sorry. That's a button. <laughs> it's not back at the beginning. Now it is. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Crypticast. I am your host, Mark Ritchie, and I'm with your other host. Don't forget award-winning Mark Ritchie. Oh, yeah, sorry. Award-winning filmmaker Mark Ritchie, and I'm here with my fellow award-winning filmmaker buddy... Christian Stavrakis. Christian Stavrakis. Uh, and we welcome you folks back. Hey, listen, I know that we told everybody that we were going to be doing 10 podcast episodes. And uh, hopefully you had the opportunity to hear the last podcast that we did, which was a combination of episodes 9 and 10, where we interviewed uh, Eduardo Sanchez, director of the Blair Witch Project, all about the current state of independent filmmaking in this new Hollywood paradigm that we've been talking about throughout our podcast. And throughout that podcast, uh, episodes 1 through uh, roughly 8, we kept referring to a gentleman who we referred to as, as our contact at Sony. And today, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to reveal who that is, because this uh, next episode of our podcast is going to be speaking to Stephen Douglas Craig of Sony Pictures, and uh, we're going to be getting his take on the uh, new Hollywood paradigm, this new normal in Hollywood, and how uh, we're all in the not only in the independent scene dealing with this new normal, but how the Hollywood system is changing before our very eyes. So uh, let me go ahead and, and, and at least introduce Steve. Uh, Stephen Douglas Craig is his name, and he began his film career in Brisbane, Australia, where he uh, received his BFA in theater and film studies at the Queensland University of Technology. Um, after moving to the United States, Steve attended the American Film Institute Conservatory, where he received his MFA in screenwriting. Steve is currently a senior executive assistant at, uh, and a story analyst with Sony Pictures Worldwide Acquisitions, where he's worked on such high-profile uh, films as War Room, Looper, uh, the 2013 Evil Dead remake, the Insidious Horror franchise, Don't Breathe, amongst many others. Steve also has uh, writing credits on such television shows as the current CBS smash hit Hawaii Five-0 and has two personal projects currently in the development stages. He is also the owner of the newscreenwriter.com, through which Steve coaches young and upcoming screenwriters who are trying to break into the industry. Steve, we are so glad to have you with us. We're finally glad to be able to. I think people were wondering for a while if we just made you up uh, in our podcast, but we're delighted and looking forward to a very eye-opening or uh, your eye-opening revelations uh, and perspectives on uh, the Hollywood studio system uh, from someone who's on the inside. So welcome. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here, guys. Uh, um, I've been listening to the podcast. I really like it. I love what you guys are doing. Um, it's very worthwhile, that's for sure. And, you know, there is a big divide between, I think, you know, independent film being made around the world and some of the studio and network systems. And it's nice, it's nice to be able to at least let you into some of the changes that are going on and, and, and uh, why they exist and what they are and how you can, how you can navigate them. Fantastic. Well, let's dive right in here. Uh, I'm going to start off with a, a little segue here with a quote from Picasso, who once said, good artists copy and great artists steal. And that's precisely what Hollywood is doing right now. It's kind of mining. They're mining their vaults in an endless cycle of nostalgic sequelitis that Chris and I have talked about in our previous podcasts. 
And all the while they're catering to these these foreign markets because that's now where the money has gone to. My question is why and how have we lost American audiences? And how long can this current paradigm be sustained before Hollywood runs out of material? That's a good question. I, I mean, it's hard It's hard using the terms Hollywood because uh, Hollywood's just a suburb of Los Angeles, to be honest with you. If you've ever been here, it's actually quite a dump. <laughs> but uh, but basically, there are a lot of factors um, when you come to consider, you know, sequelitis, for instance. I mean, sequels wouldn't be made if they weren't if they weren't viable financially. I mean, this is a business, first of all. You know, we can talk about artists and all that kind of stuff, and there are some great artists involved in filmmaking, as we know. But you know, Hollywood is a business, and the film industry is a business. The television industry is a big business, and a lot of the changes, I think. Um, a lot of the changes with American audiences and those kind of things are going to the theatre and going to the cinema exist in technology, not just, I think, what's coming out of Hollywood. You know, with the advent of streaming, um, you know, I, I've worked at Worldwide Acquisitions now for nearly nine years. And, and when I first started, you know, the DVD was already starting to die, you know, and that was an industry in itself. You know, we were still making films starring Jean Vaux. Claude Van Damme, which no one would bother to go and see in a cinema here. <laughs> but but they, him and people like Dolph Lundgren and Steven Seagal, they still have very big uh, followings in Europe. You know, so when we look at those things and we look at that as a business and say, well, if we can make a, a, a project with them for a certain amount of money, we can sell units in Europe and make our money back and more without having to deal with theatre chains. You know, and, and so... You know, with the advent of Netflix and Amazon and the streaming services that are that are taking audiences away from the cinema, there's no doubt about that. Uh, we have to adjust, and the people making these movies inside the studios have to adjust to what the demands are of that technology and the audiences that are flocking to them. Um, and you know that that has involved looking at budgets. You know, we we do have to look at at how much we are spending on on a certain project. You know, your $200 million budgets are very rare nowadays uh, unless you are dealing with Marvel or DC or a co-production with another studio that involves Ocean's Eleven-type A-list ensembles. Uh, you know, they're very rare and they're getting harder to do because of, of those. It's not just American audiences too. It is international audiences. You know, uh, I, don't think, I don't think we'll ever run out of material you know, um, I think we are living in a time where, you know, there's a lot of cable channels, which means there is a lot more need for material. And some of that stuff is going to be recycled every now and then um, because, as I said, you are dealing with a business. And when those businesses, you know, have a product that may not have seen the light of day for, you know, 30 years, they can recycle that into something and aim it towards a four-quadrant uh, an audience now that has never even heard of Steven Spielberg. You know, I, I just there, there is going to come a time where that is. I, I can't imagine it, to be honest with you. <laughs> but uh, there is going to come a time where, where he is just going to be someone who made films, you know, like Alfred Hitchcock and Orson Welles. You know, we, 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 we don't, the only places that really do delve into those classics now are Criterion Collection and, and you know, film schools and, and, in a lot of cases, people who really want to study the history of film. Audiences are now dealing with not just 
not just material and that, that sequelitis that you mentioned, but that sequelitis is, is making a lot of money. I mean, you know, we uh, work with Blumhouse on the Insidious franchise, for instance. And, you know, when you have artists like Lee Winnell and James Wan, uh, who are tremendously good writers and filmmakers, when they are making those things, they have a market and they bring a market. Even even Ed Sanchez, you mentioned, uh, you know, um, even Ed brings a certain amount of cachet when it comes to, you know, online marketing and, and, and how to get things done. You know, so it's not just sequelitis to a certain degree. There there is a there is a market for those kind of things, but it's the budget, the finances, and you know, and a lot of the deal making that changes based on what platforms we're going to release on. You know what I find uh, interesting and also possibly disturbing about this new paradigm, Steve, is and Mark and I discussed this in a previous episode, is that a lot of that sort of name recognition. Based on the fact, I mean, when we were growing up, it was all Spielberg and George Lucas, and they pretty much dominated the industry. You know, Scorsese had the, the sort of pantheon of directors from the, the 70s and 80s. And they are now, again, because we're in a generation of millennials now, a lot of these people, I'm sure they're familiar with the name or familiar with, you know, Star Wars and Indiana Jones. But Spielberg, for instance, he had a hell of a time getting Lincoln produced. And I was fascinated by that because he said it almost went to HBO because nobody wanted to back it because they said, well, the foreign audience isn't going to appreciate a story about an American president. Blah, blah, blah. He said, this is a Spielberg movie. And they were talking about taking it to HBO because they said, well, my God, if Steven Spielberg doesn't have any cachet or any muscle to pull in Hollywood, then who does? I think, I think again, you know, um, even probably when Steven Spielberg was starting out, you become they, they become a brand you know you are dealing with branding you are dealing with marketing you know even if a budget for a movie is you know look at martin scorsese now he's a, he's a great filmmaker and he has a, had a tremendous career in filmmaking yeah um but no one went to see silence you know it just it yeah. didn't bomb but no one went to see it because um the the you know the generations that are now flocking around phones and around ipads they're not marketing martin scorsese of those people and so this, this kind of generationalism is going to shift, you know. Uh, Steven Spielberg in his day, in those 90s and 80s and, and so forth, he could sell a film with his name on it, yeah. you know, and get a theatrical release. That is not going to last forever. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're going to date and they become yeah. classics. And he's a Hollywood giant and he always will be. But when you get Quentin Tarantino coming up and you've got Eli Roth and you have a lot of that, you know, and I'm not putting them in the same, I'm not putting Eli Roth in the same category as Steven Spielberg, but, <laughs> but, but they, can, they can sell a film because um, a lot of it has become marketing. You know, these, these uh, I guess these franchises are now being marketed a different way than what Steven Spielberg was being marketed. You know, we, we now have Instagram, we have Twitter, we have these, you know, we have a president who can't seem to help himself. Yeah. You know, we have, we have all of these different platforms that we can market a film on. And these studios are still are still putting money behind these big films, you know. Um, and will that become um, archaic at some point? Yeah, probably. You know, I mean, when you look at uh, when you look at the first Insidious movie, I mean, it was a $90 million, almost, uh, almost a $90 million domestic opening. Not opening weekend, but, you know, a domestic run. Um, and those movies are not being made for big budgets. Mm-hmm. So 
the system itself is starting to look at ways of, you know, you know, where there's the Sniper franchise. There are seven Sniper films. Right? I don't think I've seen one of them. I, I don't believe I have either. Yeah. yeah. Tom Berenger is not in the seventh one. Let's put it that way. But yeah. But 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 they're being, you know, those movies that were back then are now being repurposed for a different platform. Uh-huh. So you you have pay TV. You know, you're not going to get a fifty million dollar budget and put it on television. You know, that's what we do with TV shows like Boardwalk Empire and those kind of those shows, but not movies. You know, movies are completely different. And I, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, there's so much content right now that that there are ways to make films that don't have two hundred million dollar budgets. You know, like you guys did, and I know what you guys went through with making Mortal Remains. You know. Um, the fact is, if you're an indie, if you're an indie filmmaker, you have to love it. You know, you have to be passionate about it. If you're going into indie filmmaking to make money, then you're in the wrong business. business. <laughs> I think we said Chris made that statement somewhere in one of our earlier episodes. Well, you know, it's funny. Everyone is now saying the age of the auteur is dead. But what I find intriguing about the other end of that stick is that there seems to be a trend now. Uh, and Mark, you talked about this in one of our episodes too, our earlier episodes of Netflix and I guess Amazon has a film division now and these other cable uh, outlets that are reaching for young filmmakers who have had maybe one feature under their belt and handing them big budget stuff like these these guys that were on the Han Solo picture I mean that ended badly but uh, the guy that did Jurassic World Colin Trevorrow he had done what one feature before that and then it was like a student film before that yeah, yeah, his and his IMDb credits are very very short list. Yeah, they're reaching deeper and deeper into the bucket of guys who are just sort of coming into their own, and I I guess that's what's encouraging for guys like us. Yeah, it is. It is. Look, as I said, there's a you know even though this the system itself is changing, you know it's a good time in a lot of ways, um, but it's really about doing your research with a business head and a writing head, you know, which is what makes you guys a great couple. Yeah, um, but uh, but you have to have that on, um, and and also try to think about what you're passionate about. So you've got to couple all of those things, uh, I think. Um, but I, you know, these young guys getting work. You know, like I listened to a podcast the other day with the, uh, the Writers Guild podcast with the Duffer Brothers, who uh, developed Stranger, Stranger Things. Things. Yeah. You know, we're talking about the second season and stuff. Um, and and those guys went through the ringer. They went through the ringer trying to get some kind of recognition for their work before they got away with Pines and all that kind of stuff. They just wanted to make films and have anything to do with TV. I think one of the great things that's happening now at places like Netflix and Amazon is you are getting development and production teams over there that are embracing not just people who are experienced mm-hmm. in film uh, or TV. Um, you know, there's a lot of scouts out there that are, that are scouting talents. And, you know, I, I graduated from AFI a little while ago. But, you know, people graduated after me. And, you know, there's a lot of writers in Hollywood. Um, all you can really do is invest in yourself and your scripts, but you really do have to have a business brain. And some of these young guys, that's what they do now. You know, they are tapped into the social media aspects. I think I read somewhere online that Mark Zuckerberg is even thinking about getting into the scripted TV game. Oh, boy. Uh, with Facebook, you know, if you search it on Facebook, you'll find it. But, um, but it's you know, the streaming, the streaming is a is it, it can reach a lot more people than a domestic cinema can. 
and I think that's what people, that's going to be the way of the future. Will, will cinema die? I don't think so. I think, it's a, I think cinema is more than just pictures on a screen. You know, I, th- I think people know that. Yeah, I, but I, I think it is the experience. And I think Scorsese was the one who a couple of months, or maybe it was last year, he said uh, that cinema is dead. That the, the whole sitting in a room with a group of people and watching a movie and, and sharing this sort of communal experience that just no longer exists because we're all so, we're all so uh, engaged with our technology or staring yeah. into our phones or whatnot. Yeah. And I wonder to what extent he is, he is right. Yeah, is there, is, is there talk on the lot at Sony, Steve, about, you know, well, the, the multiplex won't be around much longer or, you know, because everyone's relying on their iPads and phones and so forth to, to, no, to source their no, entertainment? Like I mean, one of the good things about, you know, working at Sony and, and getting to see all of the different divisions and interacting with that kind of big business is that um, some things you cannot fight. And if you're going to continue to bash your head up against the wall saying, why is it so, why is it so, instead of rolling with it and finding ways to work with it, mm-hmm. I think that's something that Sony does really well. You know, uh, we are a company that, you know, uh, that, that has an electronics division, you know, not just, not just a movie division. You know, so the integration of all of that technology and ways of working with streaming and ways of working with different platforms probably comes a little more naturally to our company than others sometimes. But, Interesting. Um, I don't think I don't think there is any talk of that. You know, the fact is theatre chains still exist and they still exist because they're making a lot of money. Um, I, you know, theater, uh, cinema is dead is probably a little hyperbolic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think cinema is dead uh, compared to what it was when, you know, Martin was in his prime. Yeah. Uh, I think it's different. Um, but I think, you know, you've now got the advent of virtual reality, which is starting to make a big play in in the market. You know, they're developing, I have a friend of mine at Sony who's gone to work for a big VR firm right now, and they're looking to make, they're looking to get into the feature film game. I mean, the technology is not there yet. You know, it's like buying a hybrid in the early 2000s. You just wouldn't do that. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but, you know, we now have hybrid cars. So, uh, you know, I think, technology has to be embraced and it has to be understood. And I think we do that pretty well. And there's, there's some little, you know, there's some little stops and starts that we've experienced, you know, with the, the, the traditional DVD market kind of dying. But I think we were very good at, at picking up the transitions and being able to recognize the changing markets. And look, they don't, we don't get everything right all the time. You know, that's not going to happen as far as the business goes, but you know, I think uh, the guys that I work with, especially in the financial and business affairs side, are very tuned into, you know, how how to work with these different platforms and streaming services, and how to transition out of old technology and out of old mindsets into new ones. That's fascinating. You know, I, I want to jump back to uh, the Duffer Brothers real quick uh, because these guys are young, and I find it interesting that they had an aversion to television. And really were focused on a on a feature film career. I mean, Chris and I, you know, that's our big complaint. We grew up in a different time, in a different Hollywood paradigm, uh, where TV was looked down upon. And now TV is is being embraced by high-profile actors, high-profile writers, high-profile directors. But the old saying was, Hollywood is for director and it, for directors and TV is for writers. Does that still hold true in your uh in your experience? 
or yeah, or is to this a certain is... degree they they are very different platforms. I think uh, you know episodic television is still a very different writing and production experience than making a film, um, and you know I think there's a lot more money in television now than there used to be. You know I think uh, you know when you're looking at the level of budgets that are being spent on you know Westworld and Game of Thrones and yeah. um, but you know what I think there's a lot more money and actors are attracting you know. Actors are always going to be attractive to money, but uh, but I think that there's a different level of production, and that level of production and the ability to move and breathe as an artist and create when you don't have to think about budget so much uh, will attract, you know, filmmakers of an A-list level to television, and I think that's what's happened. You know, when you get creative um, creative spaces like HBO and 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 Netflix and Amazon have become kind of like leaders in 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 content creation you know um i'm surprised they don't have a studio of their own at the moment to be honest with you but um you know i i think they are different i think the auteur question that you that you said before is interesting because i think we still do look for auteurs you know if, if you know we get a lot of scripts with the writer attached as a director you know um maybe not first time you know, but but we do get a lot of those and we look to that you know um mm -hmm. We do look to that to see if that's uh, that's an element that that we can uh, that we can use, depending on what other elements are attached. You know what? Let me see if I can let me see if I can approach this from a different angle. Sorry to interrupt, Chris, but th th this is kind of what bothers me: is that so? We have a new generation that's coming on board. They're they're watching both their television and their cinema and their films, their movies on these digital devices, be it a phone or an iPad. They're very comfortable viewing the art in that from that source their entertainment from these sources and there's going to become a point where it's indistinguishable uh you'll say I, I just got done watching this what are you going to call it because they won't be able to tell whether it was a movie made for tv or because game like you said game of thrones the budgets for some of these television series are are rather large uh, and when you have access to that kind of that financial flow, I mean, uh, uh, what is it? Netflix, I believe, invested about three years ago, invested six billion dollars in the new program. That's that's unreal. Six billion dollars. This was this was a quote I picked up from the Hollywood Reporter. So I'm not making this stuff uh, up out of the blue. But my, my big concern is a as a lover of the cinema, as someone who enjoys the communal experience of going to the theater and I go once a week to, you know, slap my $10, $15 down to see a, a, a Hollywood film. I'm concerned about that, that point where we're not going to be able to tell the difference. And that's why I'm wondering, is Hollywood getting to the point where they're like, well, what difference does it make? They're all going to be world, this, the multiplex not, might not be here any, for much longer. And everyone's going to be watching at home in their home theaters or on, 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 on iPads and iPhones. And Will Hollywood get to the point where will the will the art get lost? I guess because there is a difference between the way a film is constructed and the way a, a you know a, a television show is. Well, I don't, I you know, I don't think that there's no art in making television. Uh, I think there's definite art there. Yeah, you know, I think in a lot of cases that you know, I mean, we still have libraries, we still have books. You know, we said that those things still exist. We still have a, I can, there's still a Barnes and Noble near me. You know, I can go and buy a book because people like the experience of walking into a bookstore. Okay. And they, mm -hmm. and they like the experience of being able to browse books. 
there is a social aspect to it. There is a, a visceral aspect to it. There is a, you know, a tactile aspect. And I think, you know, in, in 100 or 200 years, maybe, maybe that won't exist anymore. I don't know. I think right now it's not something to think about. I think people love going to the cinema. I think they go to the cinema more than just to see the art. I think it's a family thing. I think there are lots of different people who go for different reasons. They go on dates. They go on, you know. So I think the cinema experience is ingrained in us as a culture. Uh, and I, and I, don't, I don't see that dying anytime soon, to be honest with you. People love stories. Story is ingrained in us. Um, and, and, and our experience of those stories may change with technology. In fact, they have. You know, uh, my kids, who are very, very young, they're going to grow up and they're going to, you know, they're going to have a completely different experience, perhaps, you know, than I did. Maybe the cinemas will be a different thing. You know, maybe they won't exist. Maybe they'll be like a bookstore where you go down and you, it's more about the experience. Um, but we don't. You know, we, we have a very big home entertainment department at Sony um, who works very closely with our Sony TV uh, department, uh, which are very successful. Um, and they, it's their job in a lot of ways to look at the changing environment and work out what people are watching, how they're watching it, you know. And, and <laughs> The Sopranos, I think, is probably one of the game changers in terms of television. No doubt. Being produced uh, as a cinematic experience. You, you know, if you watch... The whole thing you could you could sum it up as a 72 episode movie or whatever it is um uh das boat was originally a a miniseries on german tv which was edited down to feature length for release here but it, you know, again that was like eight hours long or six hours but it was the monetary uh concerns that they said well this has to fit into it we have to get this many screenings in per day we have to cut it down to this length the which is why they thought titanic was going to fail uh-huh. And well, Cameron, I don't know, he's the alchemist uh, filmmaker because he somehow has that formula. He did it again with Avatar. Time again. And when you go back and watch those movies again, you think, well, there's not a lot of substance there. It was fun to see it in 3D. But a week later, I, it was like a Chinese dinner. You're hungry an hour later. <laughs> what, what, what was that about? You know, but it, it, it served its purpose for enough people that now he's on top again. You know, top grossing movie of all time still, I think. And now he's got Avatar 2 and 3, and you just sent me the article where Avatar 2 is now supposed to be the first 3D movie that won't require glasses. Talk about embracing technology, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's all, he's all about embracing he, he always has been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Technology is going to advance whether you want it to or not, and there are some platforms that we release art on that are going to, that are going to suffer. You know, but, but I think, you know, if, if you're someone who wants to tell stories and write stories and make films, then it, it's, you know, it behooves you to do your research and find out, you know, how they're changing, what they're looking for, um, you know. And look, in all honesty, as far as, you know, indie filmmaking goes, uh, it's a grind. You know, it's hard to get funds and it's hard to get someone to just read your script when there are no elements attached because... No one's going to bankroll. No investor is going to put money into a screenplay. They're just not going to do it because what's the guarantee of return? Unless they're being handed it by Aaron Sorkin or somebody like that. Mm -hmm. But Aaron Sorkin is an element. He is something that you can bank. Mm -hmm. You know, he is something where you can go to a distribution company or a studio and go, Aaron Sorkin is attached to, uh, to write this project and they just do it. Yeah. It doesn't, that, that kind of stuff doesn't even come through our department. It just goes straight 
to the head of the studio. So, so those that's what we look for in in uh, you know. Unfortunately, with indie filmmaking, in a lot of cases, the studios and the networks are just not the places to come because they don't they, they've got nothing to offer you, and you have nothing to offer them. What you should be looking for is places that that will financially um, uh, fund independent filmmaking and filmmakers and even those are becoming hard to get to because they'll want to know that the money is going somewhere where they know there's going to be distribution they know that you know i had i had uh, i had this funny situation a few months ago i had this guy call uh the office and he said hey i've got this fi- i'm going to use an american accent <laughs> hey i've got this film starring mike the the situation sorrentino from the Jersey Shore, <laughs> and uh, I want to get distribution. Now, what do I do with that? <laughs> I mean, who, unless you're planning to have a one cinema release on the Jersey Shore, <laughs> what what do you want me to do with that? I, I can't the, do anything. You know the you Sorrentino know? family will turn out to see it. <laughs> that's right, but where's, where did my money go? Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. I think... You know, before you make films and before you commit to, you know, um, to sending it out to funding bodies, to sending it out, you know, you guys were a little bit different in the way you went about yours, um, you know, which we can get into another time if you like. But but uh, I think as far as this, this kind of thing goes, you really got to do your research about what is going, you know, don't spend $4 million or $2 million on a film and then go out to your distributors and say, Got Mike Sorrentino, because, because no because no one cares, and, yeah. and you're you're going to lose your money. So I think indie filmmaking, you know, guerrilla filmmaking, and all that kind of stuff is really hard. Um, you're in a catch twenty two most of the time. You're going into your own pocket. You know, you're scrounging around. You're, it, it is a tough gig. If you don't love it, do something else because yeah. uh, it's hard. And 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 that's the thing. Um, Find someone who loves the script, you know, who can get you in to see a financial advisor, you know. Um, so you might not always want to look at the industry itself, you know. Um, you might not want to always look at that, but you, you know, look elsewhere for people who want to be involved in making a film, you know, who might be just private investors and raise it that way, you know. That's why Kickstarter started, you know, because people could invest in a story or something. Uh, and they could make it that way, but you know, uh, it, unless there is an element attached, you know, and I, I, I say this by rote because I pretty much say this to someone at least twice or three times a day. It, if you want us to take a look at your film, then it has to have something we can sell in it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why genre sells. I mean, genre. When you look at genre, genre almost sells itself if it's done well. Yeah. You know, that's where we find young filmmakers. But if if you're making some kind of drama with with again the situation in it, I just I can't sell that to anybody, and and no one's going to buy that, not even not even TNT probably. So, you know that's that's the other thing is be smart when you're, you know, write what what you want to write, write what you love, you know, write what you want to see. You know, if you're writing something and you don't want to see it in the cinema, then stop writing it. Yeah. You know, if you want to really see something on the screen, write it. You know, that's what you should be writing anyway. But when it comes to then getting it made, that's when you have to really start thinking smartly about, okay, how do I get people interested in this? Mm-hmm. Go out, 
You know, you got to get to know people. That's the thing. Can can you actually expand on on this specific topic just this, uh, in a little more detail? Because I think a lot of independent filmmakers, you know, Chris and I grew up in a again. I keep saying this in a completely different Hollywood. Back when when I finished my first screenplay, um, I had two options. This was in 1995. I had the option to go to Hollywood and pitch it to someone because back then you could get a meeting with somebody on a low level, and if they liked it, it might work its way up the ladder. Or, you know, or you entered a festival, uh, which is what I did. And then the festival, when I won the festival, I ended up getting a call from an agent and, and so on and so forth. But right. Hollywood is very different now. You, you no longer get a pitch meeting. They don't exist. You just explained it in, in briefly. You've got a package. Of, uh, it's got to be a package deal. You need a, a, an established director. You need... Uh, 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 some, you know, a B-list at least actor um, and so forth before you can actually attract financing or more importantly, attract, uh, a, be it a television studio or a Hollywood studio. Talk a little bit about that process because I think a lot of people think, I got a great idea and they think they're just going to walk into somebody's office and sit down with Harvey Weinstein and go, so let me tell you about my story, you know what I mean? And it's going to be made into a movie, so. And, and before you launch into this one, Steve, uh, that's that's kind of where we were coming from when we made Mortal Remains, because Mark and I had this notion of old school Hollywood where you could walk in and pitch a story and they say, great, here's a couple of bucks, go make it. And now it's not at all like that anymore. And now it's go make it and then maybe we'll talk. Yeah, it's uh, that aspect of it has changed. You know, yeah. it, it isn't like that. You know, actors are not owned by studios anymore. You know, uh, you know, a lot of those places uh, – um, a lot of the ways that things were done have changed. You know, even even people who, you know, we've got people that we work with a lot, but even people who, you know, might have a good script and and, and are a semi-known name can't get pitch meetings at studios. You know, um, there are certain levels. You know, we work with people who have track records and we know that we can work with. And a lot of the, uh, you know, um, Frankly, a lot of the work that comes to us comes through the agencies. We are just one of those. Um, we are one of those companies and divisions in, in Sony that we don't take unsolicited scripts, and and that that at my level is you know it's hard. That's hard to hear for a filmmaker who has a script. Um, but all I can say is that I got my Hawaii Five-O gig on season six because I knew people. And I knew people, and I cultivated those people. I don't need you. Don't need to know a hundred people. You don't need to go to some of those some of those Hollywood mixes that they have are a worthless waste of your time. Um, a lot of the big pitch festivals, uh, they will send assistants and interns. So it, it's it's very difficult to find the right person, you know. And that's the good thing about you know the good thing about you guys is you hunted down and you you did enter festivals. The festival circuit is still one of the best ways to get your film seen for an indie filmmaker. You guys went about that the right way once you finished. When you have made a film that you think is right, um, then, you know, it's the festival is a good way to test it because in a lot of cases, a lot of the smaller festivals will give you feedback on it. Um, but as far as the script goes, you know, I mean, you really do have to mine people that you know um the best way to do that sometimes is through education courses through colleges you know another reason that i set up the new screenwriter.com 
is that I wanted to recreate a development experience inside, inside you know, the one that I got from AFI in a lot of ways. You're not sitting in a classroom with me, but it goes through that same procedure on helping you to build the right material. Now, you know, I happen to work in a place where I have access, but a lot of people, um, you know, come in through those college courses, you know, UCLA, USC, AFI, you know, um, the, the Tisch School in, at, at New York University, a lot of those, um, entrance, we spend a lot of time looking at young writers there. You know, we look at showreels um, of, of shorts. There's a whole industry like right now, there's this new uh, new platform called Shutter.com, which is, uh, which is which is like an amazing site if you've never been on there. It's like, has all this old school kind of horror and new stuff from all around the world. You know, I'm watching some great, I watched this great Norwegian horror TV series on there. Um, but a lot of those platforms now are where we go to mine, you know, uh, film and content. So festivals, if you make an indie film, your festivals are not the only way to upload them now. They're, these these great sites now are somewhere you can actually submit to and they'll look at your film. And I'm not saying Shutter does that, by the way, but but they will look at your film and they can upload it and you can upload it onto a website and promote it that way. You know, so this is where technology takes over as well is there are a lot more um, opportunities for young indie filmmakers now to get their work seen that's not the hollywood studio system the one that i work in is is impenetrable when it comes to a first-time filmmaker almost you know um it, it is uh because there is so much there are so many filmmakers around for us to look at now there's so much content out there right now um we're looking to we, we used there used to be develop, a lot of development done where i worked you know that's getting a little more um difficult to do because we're putting that on you know packaging houses the agencies the management production companies those kind of things are doing a lot of the development work and packaging work in-house before they bring it to us so um when we get that material from a sales agent or an agent we know that it's already been through a certain ringer and doesn't mean it doesn't mean we're not going to have you know stuff to say about it and 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 have our say on how it should go further you know um but i think in a lot of ways you know technology and the internet and those smaller streaming um platforms festivals they all still exist you know it's about again doing your research and trying to get your film seen like you guys did and and you know back, just backing your own work you know um it's hard to know how to put something together like that it's hard to know um where to get the money but again uh if you go to a lot of the state uh funding bodies film funding bodies they do have a, a plethora of people or companies that have either invested in films or are interested in investing in films or you can look at the information on those websites too but you know it's a minefield it's hard you know I, i'm I'm at the stage where, you know, I had an agent. I've just parted ways with my agent and manager because I was doing more than they were. You know, there's a a lot, you know. Let me interject real quick because I think I want to make sure that our listeners hear this. We we address Steve as a senior executive assistant and, and a story analyst at Sony Pictures. Long before Steve was working at Sony, he was writing screenplays. All right. How many scripts do you have under your under your belt now? Completed. Uh, oh, completed. I just started work on my 14th. 14th. All right. So Steve gets up at 4 o'clock in the morning, 
all right, and writes for several hours at the office before he actually begins his workday. And so I want people to know this. Just because Steve works at Sony Pictures, even he still has to go through the, the same rigmarole that, that us independent filmmakers have. You still have to package your, your product together. You still have to work the system. You still have to, you know, network with people and so forth. Um, having your foot in the door, so to speak, uh, doesn't even guarantee you, uh, you know what I mean, financial backing of any sort. And I think it's important for everybody to hear that because so that they don't think that you're a suit, but so that they understand that not only do you work at Sony, but you are also have a separate career. And thank God that you're taking what you're doing uh, similar to what we're doing with this podcast, where we're kind of sharing our experience to help other independent filmmakers, you've created the new screenwriter.com, which is sort of, in essence, that same development idea. It's how can I help others who have been in, who are in the same circumstance, uh, you know, when they grow with their product. Talk a little bit about the new screenwriter, why you did it, um, because I'm sure that has something to do with uh, what we're talking about here, uh, helping others kind of get a, a, you know what I mean, a grasp, a hold of, how the system works. You know, it's, I really enjoyed my experience at the American Film Institute. You know, I my mentors were um, Academy Award nominees, um, uh, and and I was very lucky because I was one of nine screenwriters in the room with this amazing person. And uh, and you know, my development teacher was Anna Thomas, who who wrote Frida. And, you know, it was a tremendous, that, that two years for me was a tremendously uh, re rewarding time um, as a writer. It's where I really discovered myself as a screenwriter. You know, I'd written, I'd written plays and I'd published poetry before and I'd written a little bit journalistically as well. But as a screenwriter, inside that process, because there's no undergrad program, it's all graduate um, it was a, it was a, basically a feedback development program where it was it was peer oriented, you know, um, uh, and and I wanted I wanted somehow, especially after you know my my uh, studio um, job, I wanted somehow to create something that would allow people that that I could teach. At some point, you know, I want to be able to teach screenwriting. I love it. You know, I did this great subject up there um, called The Art and Craft of Screenwriting, which I really flourished in because it was all structure. You know, and I'm not a rigid structuralist necessarily because, you know, structures can be broken. But in order to break stru from those structures, you have to understand them first. And, and uh, so I wanted to create something where people who don't have access to the American Film Institute or USC or UCLA or any of those can come to the website and it's basically a menu system. So, you know, if you already have an outline and you think it's good, you can submit it, we'll go through it, and you have access to me, not just some, you know, not just some agency intern who's being paid by a coverage site to read a script. Mm -hmm. you, you have access to me. And what I'm looking to do is to bring people to the website who, who want to do it by degrees. And there's no time limit. You know, if you just want to deal with the, you know, the the basic seven, you know, emotional beats of the first part of your outline, we just do that phase for a certain thing. And then there's the next phase, which we then build it out into an outline. And then we build it into a treatment and then we go over it. And then the next part is we take it to script. And this could take you a year if you want to put it all in at once. I'm not going to do it for you, but I'm going to be there at the end of the email answering questions. 
I'm going to be, you know, accessible to you when you're going through the process. And so I wanted that for myself. A lot of what I bring to it is in the development stage. You know, I'm also a writer. One of the screenplays I've written is is on its way to almost being made. So we'll see. You know, there's, I've got a couple of attachments now, a big director attached, which um, I'm hoping that there's no ink drying on any paper. So there'll be no jumping up and down until that happens. But ultimately, like like you said, Mark, I, I get up at 3.30, 4 o'clock. You know, I have a day job. I have two young children. Um, but I need to write. I have to write. And I want to, I want to find people with the new screenwriter.com that want, that want that same experience and that are passionate about it. You know, you know I, th- I think it's important for, particularly for writers to understand it's not about having a great idea. You really have to have something to say uh, in order to, to, to get to the soul of a, of a good script. You really got to have something to say. Um, and it's also execution. You know, well, of course, the technicality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The technical aspect is it cannot be, uh, yeah, it cannot be ignored. Absolutely, which is what the new screenwriter dot com is all about. But, but, I mean, Tarantino says it. In Tarantino, in his uh, in his uh, commentary on the film True Romance, which he wrote, Tony Scott directed, of course. Um, he said, he said, I wrote from the age, from about the seventh grade on, I wrote until I was in my early twenties. I wrote about 30 scripts. And then he, then he clarifies, none of which I finished. He said, the first script I finished was true romance because I finally had something to say. And what he was talking about was his frustration with not being able to write and why he wasn't able to write and, and so forth. And that sort of comes out in the character of Clarence. Um, in his script, he's kind of wayward until he kind of gets some focus on his life, uh, which is what uh, Tarantino did after, of course, he you know worked at the video store and so forth. For those familiar with his career, but I think that that's, that's a very key statement that he made. You know, which is you got to have something to say. Again, it's got to be you got to live and breathe it, much like what you, what you do, Steve. You you're up at three o'clock in the morning because you have to do it. You have something to write, something to say. Um, yeah, and you have to be invested in the journey. I mean, there are no – a lot of the people that are successful, you know, there are the odd overnight things, but it's very rare. I mean, there are people that I know that do this work very hard and they learn to live with rejection on a weekly basis, but it doesn't stop them. And and it's 95% of success is, is the hard work. It's the discipline of sitting down every day and staring at that page and going, okay – this may be the worst two hours of my life or I might have a great day and it just all falls together. But you cannot put expectations on on what and when you're going to be successful at. And and I think, you know, I I go to I went to AFI with people who don't do it anymore. You know, spent all that money and it's just it wasn't what they thought it was going to be, you know. But I think that, you know, you really have to love doing it and I love doing it. Um, I don't know what the future holds or when I'm going to, you know, when the, the next project will go or when the next TV series will be. But I don't, I don't live in that space. I live in the space of getting up and working on what comes to me. And I have like hundreds of ideas, but there are usually two or three that bubble, you know, and when I'm finished another project, I work it and I polish it and I get it to my, you know, I have a couple of trusted friends that read my stuff development for me and, and I do theirs and, and, uh, and then I rewrite, you know. And anyone can push out 
120 pages of rubbish. Yeah. But then, like you said, Christian, it's sitting down and it's crafting it and it's knowing the craft of screenwriting and, and it's knowing where those big beats should be. It's knowing how to work transitions in scenes. It's knowing how to develop characters. It's knowing how to stay true to characters. You know, and all of that is a craft. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was the beauty of AFI, you know, and, and I love that. I love rewriting. On, uh, a, on a technical note, how much in the, here in the 21st century, now that everything is sort of shifting under our feet, how much do you think the traditional three-act Sid Field paradigm still applies in terms of technical writing? Um, I don't know. I think it's still useful, yeah. you know, because uh, is every screenplay like that? No. But no. there are there are specific parts of the structure and craft of what Sid Field, you know, of what of what he brought to it that still apply today. And it's still, it's a way of manipulating and, and entrancing and surprising an audience, especially when those beats fall where they're supposed to. So structure is still a very big part of it. Um, mm -hmm. There are people that work outside of that. But as I said, um, people who, who choose to go against the structure already know the structure. Yeah. Right. They, they have spent time studying that, those structures for years and years and years. And so when they're breaking with those structures, they know how to break with them. And, and yeah. you know, when you look at TV now, you know, it's not, there are no 22 episode ways of telling, there are on network, but, but you know, there's no, there's not just 22 episodes of telling a story anymore. Sometimes it has to be done in 10 episodes, mm -hmm. eight episodes. And the structures for those screenplays are very different, yeah. you know, and, and what, is, what needs to happen in the middle of each one and what happens at the end of each one in order for me to want to come back, yeah. you know, so, and some of those are an hour 20. Some of them are 42 minutes. Mm -hmm. So structures structures are different in different mediums, and films are different too. You know, um, it, uh, admittedly, if I see a film now that's two hours and 30 minutes, I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I can do that. And now I will probably do more of the Planet of the Apes because I love. I was just going to say that comes in at 220. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and that's the right genre to have that. If it's going to be the, you know, um, uh, best Marigold Hotel free, <laughs> and it's two and a half hours, I'm probably not going to go and see uh -huh. Are you finding that – I'm sorry, Chris, go ahead. Uh, no, no, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, are, you, are, are, are young writers finding it easier to break into television writing as opposed to Hollywood writing? I mean, obviously there are more opportunities in TV than there are in, in Hollywood, but are they finding a lot more – leeway in their ability to practice the craft, tell the stories they want. You know, I'm thinking about all of these directors that Chris mentioned that are kind of getting pushed by the wayside. Uh, uh, the, the, the fellas, you know, Christopher Miller and, and Phil Lord for the Han Solo film and Patty Jenkins who left Thor and, you know, everybody's leaving over creative differences. Obviously, there's a lot more money involved in the Hollywood system, so there's a lot more pressure. And you've got to kind of maybe play to lowest common denominator or perhaps play to a foreign audience's sensibilities. And in TV, you have a little more flexibility uh, in that in that realm. It, is that the case, I guess, is what I'm asking. Is TV more flexible? And is it a place for young writers to go, hey, I might, you know, young who, those who may have an aversion to TV, thinking along the same lines that Chris and I originally did, with, I don't want to be on TV, I want to be a film writer, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, I think... A lot of the times when we're, when you're looking at film, you are looking to find that new young auteur, new, new young writer director, you know, um, and, and I think television is different in that 
a lot of writers who staff rooms are uh, people who grow up from writers' assistants or interns um, who stay with shows or they stay with producers and they become producers and writers themselves by simply learning by doing. You know, um, if you're a young person coming out of college uh, or, or wanting to get into TV, my best advice is to come and get a job as an intern or an assistant, a writer's assistant, and learn and learn the job. Um, it, that that is probably uh, with that's more so with TV than even in film. Film is probably a different path. You know, you you write scripts or you or you make a film. You know, and and you you continue to try and get in that way. But TV is very different. Um, it's much more. Um, you hear about a lot more percentage of people coming up have been there for a long time and worked for really big giant producers and writers before they became one themselves. You know, um, I had an experience where I had a, a TV pilot that got me signed to a pretty big agent uh, who I'm now no longer with uh, and won't mention, but uh, uh, I wrote a pilot. You know, I'm not a writer's assistant. You know, I came out of a grad school, and that helps too. A, a very well-respected grad school, so that that helped me a lot. Um, but I managed to write a TV pilot that got a lot of attention and got me signed. Uh, we shopped it around a bit. Um, it's a little, it was a little controversial. Uh, it was a little happy family drama set inside the clan, <laughs> and uh, and uh, it, it it was basically. People liked it and they saw where I was going, but they just didn't know what to do with it. Um, and we were, you know, we we're living in a very volatile time right now, let's face it. But yeah. I think one of the things I, where I'm working right now has been an invaluable uh, asset to me because it's given me uh, uh, access to a great many contacts that I would never have done had I not decided to become someone's assistant first. You know, uh, I, I'm lucky that I live in Los Angeles. I went to grad school in Los Angeles. Um, part of my advice would still be if you really want to be in the TV industry, you need to be here. Right. You, ju you, just, you just do. Uh, or on the East Coast. I mean, New York has a very healthy TV and, uh, and, and film industry. But, but you really do need to be on the ground when you're starting out that way. Um, uh, you can't do it from your lounge room in Alabama, I don't think. <laughs> You know what I mean? So, so that that would be my advice. I, being an assistant to somebody, you know, I got lucky that way because I came out of grad school. I was in the right place at the right time. The head of this division needed an assistant. He liked the fact that I wrote screenplays. I would read his screenplays, you know, and I helped that way. Um, and that's a great way to learn because if you want to be a writer and you're not reading scripts, that's a problem. You should be reading scripts and lots of them. And there are lots of online places you can go to do that you know, um, nowadays to, to download scripts and read them and read them in your genre, you know, and then watch television. If you want to write television, watch it and watch as much as you can. Um, but I think as far as there are differences in TV and film, with films, um, you know, I, I still believe that you have to write a screenplay. You know, you have to, you have to, and whether you go and learn how to do it or you read books or you just, I got into the AFI-based on a feature film that I wrote, and I come from the theatre, so my transition into writing films wasn't as hard as it might be for someone who has not, doesn't have that background, but um, I got into the AFI 
after I wrote a screenplay, a feature film screenplay, and I hadn't really written one before, but I knew three-act structure from playwriting and I knew kind of how to develop characters and all that kind of stuff. I just sat down and wrote it. And then I went and, and read, you know, I did read Sid Field, you know, um, not Robert McKee. Um, and I, I, I researched the structure and then I did some rewriting. Because any good book will tell you rewriting a script and making sure the craft comes then is one of the most important things. And, and you know, so that's, that would be my advice. Steve, what, writing, yeah. not to interrupt, but would you consider doing a podcast with us where you would kind of take us through the new screenwriter.com where we talk a little bit in, in more depth about how you develop the, the script, what you do with it once it's written. I'm more than happy to talk to you guys again about, about the new screenwriter and, and what I want to do and how it works. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that would, I think our listeners would, uh, would get a real kick out of that. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation. I want to thank both of you guys for, uh, for being I here. Certainly tonight. Did too. Yeah. Thank you, Steve, for, for sharing this information with us. It's really invaluable. No, thanks. Thanks for having me guys. And, and best of luck with the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. Alrighty, folks, that wraps up our bonus episode here of our Crypticast Series 1, Hollywood in Post. Uh, keep uh, the RSS feed live because we may have more bonus episodes coming up in just a few. Talk to you folks soon.